It's a widely held belief that hope is critical when you're in crisis. When you're, when you're facing a crisis, hope needs to remain high. Medical professionals have seen countless cases where patients have overcome tremendous odds by simply remaining hopeful, refusing to give up hope. Emergency responders rush into dangerous and bleak situations, refusing to give up hope that there might be survivors inside. Recently, I don't know if you saw it in the news, there were four children who survived a plane crash and were rescued after spending 40 days in the Amazon jungle. As they were working, one rescuer is quoted in an article saying, we are not losing hope because we know that they are alive. However, we can all give testimony to friends or family members that seem to go through life in the absence of hope, hopelessly, complaining about everything, unable to see a time where things get better. As a Christian, a hopeless Christian is an oxymoron. It's something that's inconsistent, and it's a terrible witness to be a hopeless Christian. Christians above all, church should be the most hopeful people on the planet. And why? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us all about that today. So if you are not there already, Romans chapter 5. We are making our way through Romans. We preach expositionally here. So my job is to, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, expose the meaning of the text. And then it's the Holy Spirit's job to apply that to our hearts. And then it's also our job to get after it in cooperation with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to follow that in our lives. That's the hard part, right? Last week, we looked at Abraham, again, as Paul's picture of true faith. When we talk about faith, it's vital that we define terms. Faith, Hebrews tells us, is being sure of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things unseen. Faith requires, though, an object. Christian faith, then, of course, hopes in God through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to have the right kind of faith, not not faith in our own attributes, in in our own ability to obey or do it ourselves, but faith in God, that God would keep his promises. Like Abraham, we must be totally convinced that God is able to do what he had promised. That enables our confidence. We also saw that God being powerful, we are to have faith in the power of God, which fuels, again, our hope. This hope is focused, of course, we're to have hope specifically in Jesus Christ, who is the one who justifies us, and we saw ultimately last week that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And this week, Paul turns a major theological corner. He is done with arguments to prove justification by faith. He's been, chapter 4 was all about systematically working through the proof of justification by faith for his Jewish brothers. Now he's done with that. Now he's going to make a major theological turn, and instead of proving uh, justification by faith, he's going to tell us the blessings of justification by faith. Let's look at just the first verse in Romans 5 again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, big transition. If you're new to the Bible, anytime you see the word therefore, hit the brakes. Because you know something just happened before that that now sets the whole foundation for what he's talking about. The foundation then for this big therefore that he just dropped 
is chapter 4. Everything that he said about why justification is true, and he even helps us out. Sometimes the Bible is super, super clear. It helps us out. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, like I've just been talking about for the last whole chapter, he says, we have peace with God. What is this peace? In this context, it's important to define that. It is not just a momentary absence of chaos. It is not a moment's peace from your kids nagging you or fighting with each other or setting fire to the couch. It is not a momentary break from life. You just pause for one minute and just collect your thoughts. It is not a respite from the constant avalanche of work from your boss or assignments in school. It is not a temporary peace from your parents constantly bugging you or your spouse's constant complaining or maybe the noise of your own soul. It is not a momentary break. It is a state of mind. It is a settled state of affairs. This peace that Paul is talking about here is not a temporary break. It is a settled state of the soul. It is the absence of conflict, specifically, of course, the absence of conflict between us and our Creator, that we were once, in fact, as Paul prayed, enemies of God, at odds with God, separated from God because of our sin. Now, Paul says, through justification by faith, that is gone, that conflict is gone, that hostility is gone, we now have peace. We're not in a position of being enemies with God, we're in a position of being at peace with God. Very close to the Hebrew word shalom, the general sense of well-being. Calvin describes it as the tranquility of conscience which arises from what it feels like to be reconciled to God. Think about that for a minute. Think about our state before Christ, before believing in Christ. Think about the, the animosity that actually was there between us and God, the separation that existed, and our complete inability to fix it ourselves, our destiny to an eternity away from God in hell forever. And now peace has been restored. It's the settled state of being reconciled to God. And so I'll say the first point like this. Because we have been justified by faith, we can experience true peace. Peace with God is the primary benefit of being justified by faith. In case you weren't aware... As I just said, none of us had peace with God in the first place. Peace with God then flows into all other areas of a believer's life. Jesus himself promised us peace in places like John 14, 27. He says it this way, Jesus himself, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, right? Again, that difference. Not as the world gives. Not just, can I just have a break for five minutes? That's worldly peace. He's giving us a different kind of peace. Not as the world gives you, do I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's the kind of peace that Jesus promises. And you need to hear something very, very clearly. Until you have peace with God in your heart through faith in Jesus Christ, you will not have peace in any other area of your life. So often we flip that, right? 
So often we're like, I need peace in my parenting. I need peace in something. I need peace in this. I need peace in my job. I need some sort of order and from the chaos, but you're going about it the wrong way. You are never going to have peace in any of those other areas until you have peace in your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone in this world is looking for peace. We want peace from war in the Ukraine. We want peace in our streets and freedom from violence, crime, and protests. We want peace in our families, peace in our marriages, peace in our relationship. You have to have peace with God first. And peace only comes one way. See justification by faith. That's the only way that you can have true peace. Murray writes, peace of heart and mind proceeds from the peace with God. Any false attempts at peace without true peace with God are band-aids on an incurable, unhealable heart wound. We have to start in our hearts and we have to start with our creator first. No political party, church, can give us peace. The election is starting to crank up now. We're starting to see that. Get ready, right? The, the noise of the presidential election is just only going to get louder and louder, right? No election result, no political party is going to give the kind of peace that we can only have through Christ Jesus. No candidate can erase the sins of our nation. No program can make the woke and broke greed-fueled corporations finally get an actual moral compass. It has to start not top-down, right? That's one of the big things. If we could just fix this, if we could just get the right person in office, if we could just get this program, if we can just figure this out, then everything will be okay. No, Christianity's not top-down. Christianity's bottom-up. Christianity starts with your individual heart. And then once we get a lot of people that are saved and regenerated and have the peace of God, now we're talking. Now we can make changes. But don't hope in fixing a system. Hope in peace through God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Does that mean we don't try? No, that doesn't mean we don't try. We try for peace. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If we have that relationship in our family, that's like this, right? We still want to be peaceful. We still want to try to make peace. You're just like, I ain't talking to you. Come to know Jesus. Then we'll talk. No, let's not be like that. Let's still be peaceful. Let's still be peacemakers, but ultimately realize that it's not going to come until we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, remember, God is peace. It's one of his attributes, right? He is the definition of the word peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Ephesians tells us that he himself, Jesus, is our peace, God the Father is called the God of peace several times in the New Testament. We can reflect on the peace that we have, and we can reflect that peace onto our situations because we have it ourselves through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask yourselves, do you have peace within your own soul? Many people can't be by themselves. They hate being by themselves in silence and solitude because they can't stand the noise and the static that comes from their own soul. That is a heart that is crying out for peace with God. Ask yourselves, do I have peace within my own soul? Do I like being alone with my thoughts? Am I okay with who I actually am right now? 
And I know in a room that this size that there are some that are and some that are not. This is the only way to be at peace with yourself. It has to follow from being at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It has to. Any other attempts at peace are just empty self-improvement measures. Start where the Bible starts, church. Start with peace with God through Jesus Christ. Peace is closely related to hope, and Paul is going to go on to give two big benefits of hope, also from justification by faith. Look at the next verse, in verse 2. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at what Paul says we also get. Access. Access, he notes, comes by faith. But access into what? In one sense, we have access, period. In one sense, we have access to God that we had not had before. Right? We were separated from God because of our sin. We did not have access to God. Right? That's a major misconception of people walking around on the planet Earth. It's like, we all can pray. We all can talk to God. We all have access to God. Not really, no. God's children have access to God. Why? Because they've been reconciled through faith. Isaiah 59.2 says it clearly, Our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. We've got to remember that. And so what does justification by faith do? It allows us to access God in a way that we did not have before. We are now the recipients then of God's grace. So even though we're still sinners, right? He graciously allows us access into his presence through faith in Christ. Now through faith, we have that access to God. And additionally, he graciously maintains that status, right? We've got to understand that rightly. Through faith, we are then reconciled to God. Think of it like the old temple, right? There was a curtain that separated the most holy place from everybody else, most holy place in the ark. That's where the presence of God was. You could not go in there. When Jesus was crucified, what happened? The curtain was torn in two. Signifying now what verse 2 says, we have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not a one-time thing, right? That's a permanent standing. And if you're like me, you know you're a sinner. And so, wow, how could I possibly then remain in the presence of a perfectly holy God when I am who I am? Grace. He maintains your status through faith in Jesus Christ. You are able to, he knows full well you're sinners, right? We're all sinners. He knows that. That's why there's grace. Think about it this way. When you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ, you are instantly justified, right? You go from the guilty column to the innocent column. You go from from being an enemy of God to a, a, a child of God. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are declared innocent. And your whole identity then changes, You're no longer a sinner excluded from God's presence and under his wrath. You are a sinner now saved by his grace. And under that grace, you maintain your presence with God through faith in Jesus Christ. To quote the lyrics of a song we sing often here, now all I know is grace. It's the beat of my heart that it's everything that I know is grace. This in turn causes us to rejoice in hope, Paul says. But hope in what? He says, we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. CSB translates it as we boast in the hope of the glory of God. 
We are now part of something that we weren't part of before. We now have an identity as God's children. We are part of God's kingdom. We have a mission. We are to glorify God on this earth, which we couldn't do before. Because now we are justified. We are adopted into his family. This mission cannot lose. Church, I think we need to hear that every day, maybe multiple times a day. This mission cannot lose. How much hope do we have as the church if we know that God cannot lose? We hope in what? His glory to do what he promised he would do. It cannot fail. When you have access that you never could get yourself, and now your whole future is one of grace, and you're part of a mission that cannot lose, is that not just total and complete and utter blessing and hope and grace? Did we do anything to deserve this? No. It's all God. And so our second point, because we have been justified by faith, we can know true grace. We've been justified by faith and we can know true grace. Think about it this way. Romans 3.23 told us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now Paul gives it right back to us in Romans 4 and says, guess what? Through faith in Jesus Christ, you now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that you didn't have before. Now you have it. Now you rejoice in that hope. That is true grace. It's total grace that we have access to God's glory, but we're also actually a part of it. We share in his glory as it's channeled through us and into other people. That is true grace. Think about it this way. God's grace unlocks access to him through faith in Christ, and not only that, then we hope in what God will do through us for his glory. God's glory and grace in the present as we live lives worthy of the calling as Christians. God's glory and grace in the future as we hope for him to return, right? And sometimes we get stuck in this eschatological quagmire where we're just kind of like waiting for Christ to return someday. But for right now, it's just Monday and I don't know what to do. And it looks like I turn on the news and it looks like evil's winning And Pride Month, I'm ready to lose my mind all the time. It's like, what is going on? Church, Christ cannot lose. He told us that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's offensive. He's on the move and we have to hope and rejoice in the glory of God. Sometimes we're just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to stick my head in the sand and wait for Jesus to come back. That's not what he told us to do. He told us to get out there and build, have babies, lots of babies, build big things, build churches, evangelize, all of that, build things for the glory of God. Why? Because he cannot lose and because we're in this. So we hope in his glory and all that's grace. It's so discouraging and I really, really worry about some of the stuff I see coming out of the church, the teaching, that's just everything, like the giant Eeyore cloud. Everything's all bad. We're, life is getting crazier and crazier. We're going to be all murdered soon. It's like, what? Have we, have we, read, thi- have we read this? Like, I know, I'm not saying it's not crazy out there. I'm not saying it's not bad. <laughs> he can't lose. How much hope and how much grace is that? How does that, I always think of the young families. Like, we have so many young families. 
what, what encouragement and motivation is the ER mindset to somebody? Why am I going to have another kid? Like, this world is insane. No, have do it. God can't lose. We're part of that hope. It's some serious gospel boldness that we lay hold of our identity in Christ and we won't let it go. One that grabs it and wrings every bit of blessing out of it than I can possibly get. It's one that goes into the presence where we now have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ and stands there and says, I want my blessing. I'm not going prosperity gospel on you, don't worry. I want my, I want my empowerment. I want you in my life. I want you to do those things that you promised. I want you to save my family. I want you to save my kids. I want you to do all those things you promised. It reminds me of the old hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Watch this. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. That's kicking in the door of the kingdom and saying, this is where I belong. Let's go. Let's do this. Ephesians 3 tells us a little bit of of Paul's moxie in this, right? Ephesians 3 and verse 11. He says, this was according to the eternal purpose that has, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have, watch this, boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We need bold, confident, joyful, hopeful Christians. That's what we need, and that's what we get through Christ. You see that word boldness? Yes, there is a sense that we boldly approach the throne of God Almighty. We lay hold of our identity in Christ, our justification, our forgiveness, our adoption, our grace, all of that. But there's another boldness that's related here, particularly what? To hoping not in our ability, in His ability. What do we rejoice in? The hope of what? The glory of God. Not the glory of Mike, because there's not much glory in Mike. Glory of God. There's a lot of glory in God. We are bold in how we stand, therefore, for Christ today. How we push back against the darkness that is all around us. The boldness in which we go forward as a church, advancing God's kingdom through the preaching of his word, seeking to go and build and do and evangelize and bring hope in the name of Jesus the boldness that is hoping in the glory of God as we together, again, push back the gates of hell in our world by advancing God's kingdom here and now. Church, he's promised that he would do this. And like Abraham, we need to hope in the glory of God and be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. And that's all grace. Great, cool, Pastor Mike. Let's close in prayer because I know what's coming up in these verses and let's just skip this next part. Yes, amen. We, we are bold, we are courageous, we are hope-filled on some days. But then there are those other days. Look at verse 3 of Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. I hear the groans, or I feel them at least, right? Yay, we rejoice in our sufferings. Crazy, rejoice in our sufferings. Yes, we don't just glorify God's grace and hope in God's glory on the good days, but we also rejoice in our suffering. 
Look at the words that Paul is using here. There's a plan. Look at the chain of events that is happening in verses 3 through 5. There is a design to suffering. Everyone loves to throw out, well, everything happens for a reason. Yes, everything happens for a reason. True, right? And we kind of throw that up there like a little layup when somebody's having a really hard time, right? Yes, God tells us this. We have to remember the reason. God doesn't do anything without a reason. God doesn't tell the ant to walk across the sidewalk without a reason, right? So yes, even suffering has a reason. Even suffering has a purpose, or even better, a design. God does not send suffering in the way of a a malicious, vindictive God. He doesn't have his finger on the red button going, oh, that's it. I saw you cuss at that guy who cut you off. Suffering. No. He has a design for his suffering, for our good. Suffering has a design, and Paul tells us how this works. There's a chain of events here that is set in motion in suffering. Suffering first produces endurance. Endurance is producing something. It produces character. Character is producing something. It produces hope. That is the design of suffering. And I'll say it up front. That's the design. Let's go along with that design. Because sometimes we want to push back against that design. Our word here for suffering is probably less than the extreme persecution, right? Unfortunately, just read uh, this morning when I was looking at the news, what was it, 30 or 40 Christians in Nigeria were, were killed, right? Yes, it, it's probably, it's in this word, it's a big word about, about suffering, but I, most guys think, and I'm with them, that this is more towards the everyday, ordinary kind of garden variety pressure that we feel for being followers of Jesus Christ. The stuff that everyone goes through. Trying to live as Christians in a world that has turned its back on Christ. The pressures to conform the tensions when we won't. The pull of sin in our own lives. The fight to stay holy. The guilt and shame when we do not. The awkward misalignment of our worldviews with people that we work with or people in our family or people in our neighborhood. Maybe our own children, our own siblings. That's more of what Paul's going for here. The everyday sufferings that we come across that could be in various degrees of severity. All of that church and more has a purpose. It has a design. It all works to mature us and it all causes us to grow. How can we understand this only as Christians that have been justified by faith? So I'll say it this way. Because we've been justified by faith, right, number three, we can see God's design in suffering. Because we've been justified by faith, we can see God's design in suffering. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you just think suffering is something that happens for no reason, and we just have to suck it up and put on a happy face and move on. That, sadly, is the hopelessness of the atheistic worldview. That suffering just happens. We're just all bags of carbon and water moving on a space rock and and we bump into each other every once in a while and stuff happens and there's no reason for it and oh well. No, it's a, it's a hopeless worldview. Right? Suffering has a design. And I worded that very carefully and intentionally because we can understand the, divi- the design of suffering. But sometimes we have no idea the why of suffering. We have to realize that. 
We have to separate that out, the design of suffering from the why of suffering. This is the logical problem of evil versus the personal problem of evil. We can look at this and be like, oh, I see, yes, I see this chain of events right here, and I understand that perfectly. But then it happens to you, and now it's why me? That's perfectly okay to ask that. Job asked that. We all ask that. It's perfectly okay. Read the Psalms. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to regret? Are you going to ignore me forever? When will this ever stop? It's perfectly okay to ask God those big why me questions, and that's separate from the design. I don't want to stand up here and pretend to say, well, just believe this, and you, know, you should have this attitude and suffering, and it won't hurt. No, it's going to hurt, and it's okay because God is with us in that. Allow yourself to feel that in suffering. God does not send a suffering as a malicious God. He allows suffering into our lives for this design. It's an objection to Christianity, one that we can easily diffuse by putting the burden on the one who is opposing us, right? It's one of the biggest questions, one of the biggest objections to Christianity. Okay, well, if God's good and he's there, then why evil and suffering? Well, I have an answer. I have a worldview here. Here's my answer, right? It's really good to just put it back on the other side, the opposing sides. What's your answer? Because I have an answer. They don't have one. It just happens. You can't deny that suffering exists. We've all gone through it. We will go through it. So it's not whether or not it exists. The Bible has an explanation and a design for it. The only one. The only one that has that answer. The right answer is that we can't always see and we may not understand the why, but we can trust God's design in it. Spurgeon said it this way, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I don't know. I have said that so many times as a pastor, and that's the right answer. When someone comes to you and they're suffering, resist the temptation with all the platitudes and just say, I don't know why this is happening, but I know God's here with you, and I know he's good, and I know his hand can be trusted, and his heart can be trusted, rather. To say it maybe a little more Pastor Mike-like, when you can't see the why, trust the design, you can't see the why. Trust the design. Church, all suffering has a God-glorifying design, and here it is in our passage. And let's look and unpack some of these words here. We've already looked at suffering, right? But what is endurance? If suffering produces endurance, what is endurance? Endurance is the capacity to bear up under suffering. It literally means to be able to stand against the pressure Right, the pressure of suffering, it literally means to plant your feet and stand against that pressure and not be moved. Think about like when you're going to the beach, right, and you're, you're sitting there in the waves, right, and the waves come, and then what happens? And they all go back out, right? And then you feel like you're dizzy and you're going to fall over, and everything's like your feet get buried in the sand, right? You're, stand, you're literally standing against the tide. That's, that's what this idea of, of endurance has. Whatever pressure is going on around me, I will be unmoved. I will endure it. I will bear up in this suffering. Is that the natural reaction to suffering? No, the natural American reaction to suffering is this is terrible. Make it stop. The natural American reaction is complaining and whining. 
natural reaction is to ask God, are you, are you off duty or something? Did, did, you, did, you not, what's, did you not see what's going on in my life? Your job is to make my life comfortable and easy. And hello, I got this thing here. Take care of this for me. And God's going, I'm at work. I'm doing something. That's what endurance is, to be able to stand up under suffering. Yet Paul does, doesn't tell us that complaining in suffering is okay, but he rather says the opposite. Rejoice in suffering. Don't complain in suffering. Rejoice in suffering because it has a design, and part one of that design is suffering produces endurance. Notice how you can't get to endurance without suffering. But he goes further. Let's look at the next word he uses. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. So what is character? Character is something that is observed over time. It can be good or it can be bad, right? Point is, you only see it by observation. Character is proven, right? Here we're going after godly character, mature character, faithful character, Steadfast character. How do we see those character traits? How do we determine if someone has godly character or not? You're not going to like this. Suffering. That's how we see it. That's when we see it. That's when the character comes out. Some people react so well in the midst of it. It's not their first day on the suffering job. They've suffered a lot. And when you see a mature person go through deep waters, they are steadfast and they are enduring and their eyes are on the design, right? They've been there before. The deepest, darkest waters make the most mature believers. You've got to remember that that's how it happens. We see this all over the Bible character. We don't know until it's tested and suffering, suffering rather, is the primary way of testing. God tested Abraham with Isaac. He tested Job. He tested Israel with idolatry and prosperity. He tested Jesus on earth here. And yes, friends, he tests us. I mentioned 1 Peter last week. It is a very appropriate place to go and see another perspective on this from, from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. He says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, watch this, the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God tests us with various trials and sufferings, and we've got to resolve to know the design of suffering, the outcome of our faith. It's getting for us the very thing that we want in the first place, salvation. It's getting for us the glory of God revealed in our lives. That's how we can rejoice, right? Godly character, church, might be the most important attribute we have as Christians. It might be the most important attribute that we can maintain as Christians, that we can cultivate as Christians, because there's a lack of godly character all over. It is a terrible witness to the world. And we all know, speaking for myself, 
We have all been terrible witnesses of God with our character. We've got to remind ourselves that it's about holiness once again. It reminds me of a Roman virtue called gravitas. One author says that it's a man's seriousness, his dignity, his weight, his glory, his honor. The thing about gravitas, or godly character for that matter, is that it, it, it can't be bestowed. It can't be like, you now have good character. It, it doesn't work like that. It has to be earned through testing. It has to be seen. It has to be deepened through suffering. Ask yourself, do you have gravitas? Do you have godly character? Has your character been proven through suffering? When we are in suffering, when stress and distress is pushing in on us from all sides, the world watches, and they will see how you respond. Your brothers and sisters watch you, and they want to get encouragement from how you are going through that. Does this mean that we have to be joyful when tragedy strikes? No. Psychopaths are joyful when tragedy strikes. Okay? We are allowed to weep. We are allowed to mourn. We are allowed to wail. We are allowed to cry out to God. But we bring ourselves back to the design of suffering each and every time, which can only be realized, church, if you are a believer in the first place. Sure, suffering comes on unbelievers, but the design of a suffering towards an unbeliever is different than the design that comes on a believer. The design of suffering towards an unbeliever is designed to do one thing, bring them to their knees to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord, right? But for a believer, right? Paul's talking to believers. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. This is our design. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Do we see that? Do we, do we get that? Christians, we have the privilege of knowing the design of salvation, but it's only for us who have been justified by faith. God works all things for our good and his glory, and those things are never in conflict, and ultimately, once again, that leads us back to hope, and that's where Paul lands the plane. You thought I forgot about verse 5, didn't I? I didn't. Look at verse 3. Let's read the whole thing, because I've got to get a running start here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Track with me here. We rejoice in our sufferings because of what the design of suffering is, right? We've beaten that into the ground. It ends up where? Where does it end up? Ultimately in hope. Hope cannot put us to shame. There's no such thing as a hopeful person who is ashamed. A hopeful person is not a defeated person. Sure, we will have our moments. You're allowed to have your moments. But if we give up, we are done for. Hope must be Maintained. Paul says that the evidence of hope for Christians, those who have been justified by faith, is clear. What is it? He says it's the love of God that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what he says the evidence of hope should be. We turn around. We turn around and we remember what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. 
We remember that he loves us. And the evidence of that love is the Holy Spirit that has been poured into our heart. And none of that happens without the gospel. None of that happens without Jesus doing the work of the cross, being raised victoriously. None of that happens by, watch this, of course, being justified by faith. Hope does not, cannot put us to shame. Jesus says that peace that he would leave us, he goes on further to explain how that's going to happen through the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. It's a false doctrine to say that you need a secondary emotional experience to get the Holy Spirit. That's nonsense. This passage proves it. He says who he's given it to us. Past tense, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all of this applies to us. And so I'll say the big idea this way. Only Christians can rejoice in true hope. Only Christians can rejoice in true hope. You cannot know true peace without Christ being Lord of your life because faith in Christ alone brings that true peace. If you're here today and you're chasing peace, chasing it to quiet your noisy soul, stop. Submit to Christ and then you will experience true peace from which all other peace flows. Realize then, church, what we've been called to do, to rejoice in the hope of God's glory, not our own glory. And then that comes to us through true grace. Rejoice that we are a part of God's kingdom, that we have a mission which cannot lose, and we're advancing that through the church and the preaching of his word. And church, learn that God really does have a design in suffering. Suffering is not meaningless and empty. God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope will never disappoint us. We will never be ashamed if we have hope. We hope in God's glory. And we hope even in suffering. And if we have hope in God, church, we have it all. Is there anything that we cannot overcome knowing our hope is in Christ Jesus? Only Christians can rejoice in true Father, we thank you for your word. Though parts of this word are hard for us to read, we don't, we don't like to think about suffering. We don't like to think about um, those times that would await us, Lord, but prepare us, Lord. Prepare us to suffer by rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God and the design that you have in our suffering. And Lord, maybe for those right now that are in that season of suffering, where we, where we talk about these things and it's like treading on the very sensitive part of their heart because they are walking through it right now. I pray a special grace to be upon them. I pray a special strength to be upon them. I pray a special faith to be upon them. But most of all, that their hope would be rooted and anchored and established in God and therefore they would never be ashamed because of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Bear them up under suffering, Lord. And when it is our turn to suffer, May we experience that true strength and true grace. And Lord, for those searching for peace, Father, remind us that there's peace only one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. Peace with you through faith in Jesus Christ. May all those other areas that we are searching for peace fall under that aspect of being justified to you, reconciled to you through faith in Christ. And Lord, would you do your work through our church? Would you accomplish your mission? Would you glorify yourself? Would you make us more holy? Would you strengthen us for the task at hand that cannot lose? 
We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.